everyone. I'm Kelsey Snow, and this is Sorry I'm Sad, a podcast about grief, loss, and the importance of hope. When my husband Chris was 37 years old, he noticed some weakness in two fingers on his right hand. A couple of months after that, he noticed some muscle wasting on the outside of his right palm, and by then we knew what was coming for us. Not even a year earlier, Chris's dad had died of amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or ALS, the terminal neurodegenerative disease that kills the motor neurons that enable muscle movement, leaving those afflicted eventually unable to move, talk, eat, or breathe on their own. Doctors told Chris he had 6 to 12 months to live. That was more than two years ago. Since then, Chris's voice has changed and he's lost the use of his right hand along with the ability to smile, make facial expressions, and swallow most foods. But thanks to a promising clinical trial, Chris is still here. The medicine hasn't stopped Chris's ALS, but it has given us the gift of time. Time to be better people, to love each other more completely, to learn things about ourselves, and to see the world in a different way. We have learned, and are still learning, hard, painful lessons about how to live in this place where sadness and joy, pain and beauty, devastation and hope all coexist. What I've learned about life is that grief is, of course, universal. And while sharing the constant push and pull of my grief feels right to me, I know it's not for everybody. Still, I think that even if you don't want to share your story out loud with the world, you want to hear other people's stories. You want to feel that sense of community. You want to know that you aren't out there in this alone. And that's really what this podcast is, a space where we can talk about our grief honestly, where we can share with the world these raw parts of ourselves and see what happens when we do that. Because in my experience, what happens when I do that is I feel stronger. I feel like I can keep going. And that's how I hope you feel after listening. There are lots of things I could tell you about today's story, but I keep coming back to what I know is most true about it. Today's story is about every parent's worst nightmare. This is the story of Evelyn Fay Roy, a beautiful little girl from Calgary, Alberta, who loved music and dancing and art and books and Star Wars and her friends and family, whose light was blazingly bright and whose life on earth was heartbreakingly short. Evelyn was 11 and a half years old when she died of neuroblastoma in February 2020. With her big smile and her indomitable spirit, she worked her way into the hearts of so many people in her city and beyond, and her mother's persistence in sharing Evelyn's story has kept her there. This is a conversation about every parent's worst nightmare, but it's also so much more than that. It's about finding a way to hold on in the depths of despair. It's about choosing joy and light in the darkest spaces of life. It's about gratitude pulling us through the most traumatic events imaginable. It's about Evelyn, her mom Heather, her dad Mike, and her sister Harper. This is the Roy story. Sorry I'm Sad is a labor of love, and I mean that literally. From finding guests and researching topics to preparing for interviews and recording and editing all the audio myself, a great deal of time, energy, and thought go into each ad-free episode. If you value this podcast and want to support it, please go to www.patreon.com slash Kelsey Snow to become a member. Your contribution will help keep this work going, help keep it ad-free, help it grow, and give you access to the Sorry I'm Sad Patreon community. 
you so much, Heather, for being here. I yeah. really, really appreciate it. This is very exciting. You were just saying you've done podcasts, but you haven't done them in person. I know. And I feel very excited when I like renovated this room during COVID. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is kind of something I pictured, like being able to have conversations with people yeah. in a in a really like comfortable setting. I know. And I was just saying you need to like video it or at least share a picture because we're like leaned back in chairs with our feet up and like in this lovely bright (laughs) space that's so pretty and like this is great. Oh, I really, really (laughs) appreciate it. I first learned about Evelyn. Mm -hmm. I think the day she died. Oh, really? Yeah. I hadn't for some reason really heard about her like I don't know if I wasn't on social media enough at that point in my life but and the photo that ever that went around was that one of her with her round glasses and her beautiful eyes and her freckles and her mm-hmm. and your hair color right now actually looks a lot like her hair color <laughs> in that photo and man she just like took everybody's heart yeah in this city yeah um and the thing that I love about following you now is like I feel like I know her so well like you've done such an excellent job mm-hmm. of making everybody know her. Yeah. Um, and one of the things, and that the hope that we all have is that our people stay even in our hearts and in our minds. So you have a box of tissues right next to you. I know some, we're like 30 we seconds in and we're both teary. <laughs> um, and I've got mine stuffed into my, my cushion here. And I think that the first thing that I want you to do is just tell me about your girl. Mm-hmm. Just tell me about Evelyn. Evelyn was born like just it's so crazy when I look at her newborn photos her eyes are open in every picture <laughs> like that kid was born just full of wonder mm-hmm. and full of joy um so she just was like absorbing the world in every facet that she could and um I have this picture of her she's like 12 hours old and she's curled up on Mike's mm-hmm. chest And she has like a little half smile and she's looking out at me and it's just, I love that photo so much. Um, And she was like that always. Like she just had this kind of unnerving amount of self-confidence and she was Mm quick-witted and she had like a little bit of that sort of dry British humor (laughs) Um, and she was a little bit sarcastic and she loved music, um, especially like classics. And I will tell you, my husband is the influence of good music in our home. And I am the influence of things like the Backstreet Boys. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you need it all. And Taylor Swift. Yes. We listen, we are Swifties in our house. Um, so, so Evelyn loved music and we would often have dance parties in our home and she would pick like Queen and Pearl Jam and like good music. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But then she would also rock it out to the Backstreet Boys, which was like amazing. Um, She was bright. She was really, really smart. Um, School came easy for her. We always kind of joke that like the traditional classroom environment was designed for a kid like Evelyn because she liked to sit Mm. and learn. (laughs) (laughs) Um, She devoured books from a really young age. She was a reader and she just read and read and read and read and read and read. And, and, uh, you know, even on her last day, Mike read to her because she loved Mm. books that much. Um, She was kind. Mm -hmm. She was the best kind of friend. 
because she knew how to love people for who they were. She never asked anybody ever to be different mm-hmm. from from what the heart of who they are as a person was. And I think I learned so many lessons in that about loving people um, because she just loved. She just loved. Um, she did not care about race, color, size, ability, mm-hmm. wealth, you know, social status, anything. If yeah. if you had something, she would hang out with you. Like there's just, it didn't matter to her. Um, and she was silly. Like yeah. she, so as like quiet and calm and introverted as she was, she was also like wild and silly. Yes. And she was just like this amazing combination of all the things you want mm-hmm. an awesome human to be. And we're just like so lucky to have had 11 and a half years here with her. One of the things that I definitely want to talk about is how how the loss of Evelyn has, you know, ripples, right? And how yeah. and what it's done to you and what it's done to Mike and what it's done to her friends mm-hmm. and what it's done to Harper, right? Yeah. Like but before we kind of get into that, I wondered if you can just share with us a little bit about her about and I don't know, do you use the word journey? I do use the word okay. journey. Some people yeah. are not into the word journey. I know. Everybody has a different phrase they use. Um, I say journey. I really struggle in medical diagnosis, and especially I find in the cancer world, people love the phrase, we're fighting cancer. Yeah. And I was. Pro- I feel a little hypocritical saying this because I was probably guilty of using this phrase at the beginning, um, but I have really tried to intentionally avoid using it. Um, because what happened was, especially after Evelyn passed away and people would say she lost her battle yeah. to cancer, it, this is not a battle that you can win or lose with a valiant spirit or win or no. lose if you just do your best or win or lose if you fight your hardest. You know, cancer is not discriminatory. It chooses whoever it wants to choose. And, and when you say she lost her battle, to me in that you're implying that she didn't fight hard enough and her team didn't fight hard enough. And I was a part of that team. And let me tell you, we put everything we could Mm -hmm. into, into beating this. Of course. (laughs) It it wasn't for lack of effort. And so we say we journeyed cancer and we say, um, she lost her life to cancer. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because she didn't, she did not, she did not fail. She yeah. did not fail at anything. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So Evelyn was diagnosed in, in September of 2018. Mm-hmm. And on Instagram, where you share very openly and beautifully about your life before, during, and after Evelyn's illness, this month you've been doing like a repost of of things that you wrote a year after she was diagnosed. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if like you can take us through through that period and what that was like for you guys. Yeah. Um, so Evelyn was like, we had a great summer. We like my sister and my brother-in-law had come to visit with my nephews. We went to the stampede like five times, (laughs) which like for a local, you don't go to the stampede five times. Like that's a lot. Kids love it. We went like, (laughs) we went up the Calgary tower and stood on the glass floor and we went to the mountains. We went hiking, which is a normal activity for us. But like, we kind of, we did all the things we were like tourists in our own city, Mm -hmm. really. And then later in the summer, my parents and my brother came to visit. And again, we just did like all the things like we were tourists and 
we like hung out in the East Village and like ate sourdough bread from Citizen and like, you know, just all the things that like that tourists do in our city. (laughs) And it was so fun. And my parents were here and on the Monday night, Evelyn, who was not a complainer, complained about a bit of pain in her right side. And I thought, you know, typical mom, I'm like, she's just milking this a bit. She wants some extra. My grandparents, my parents, the kids call them more, more and far. Um, that's, <laughs> that's Danish for mom's mom and mom's dad. Oh, okay. So I just thought she wanted like a little extra more, more time. Yeah. So I just kind of like, just have a good sleep. You'll feel better in the morning. And then the Tuesday morning, she was fine. But as the day went on, she kind of started fussing and complaining a little bit more. The Wednesday, we went hiking and we finished the hike. And like Harper and Ev's friend that was with us and stuff, like inhaled their bagels from the Rocky Mountain Bagel Co. (laughs) And Evelyn had like two or three bites. And she was looking like a little pale And she was still kind of complaining of this pain in her side. And like Harper at one point buckled her seatbelt and bumped Evelyn on her side. And Evelyn was like in a fit of tears and which is again, really unlike Mm -hmm. her. And again, as a mom, you're like, you're just complaining because it was your sister. If Sophie's the one who bumped you, you wouldn't have acted like this, that sort of thing. And then the third, and my mom and I were talking about it on the way home and we're like, maybe she just has like a little bit of a UTI or something. Like we should get some cranberry juice on the way (laughs) home. And then the Thursday we went to Heritage Park and again, like Evelyn was really sort of favoring and being careful with that right side. And I started feeling like, what if it's like appendicitis and I've been ignoring it and now I'm that mother. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Friday morning, my parents, as they were leaving, I said to my mom, I think I'm going to kind of starting a new job that day. I said, when I'm done my parent meetings, I think I might take up to the clinic afterwards. I just like, just need to be reassured that yep. this isn't appendicitis. Nev was, and Harper were at my girlfriend Lisa's place. And I told Lisa kind of my plan. And I was like, I'll be done around, you know, 12, 1230. And then I'll pick up lunch and come, we'll eat. And then I think I'm going to take out to the clinic. And she texted me after my first parent meeting and was like, I feel like your instinct that something's going on is correct. Cause her daughter, Allie bumped Evelyn and Evelyn cried. Mm -hmm. And she's like, that's really unlike her, you know? And, and I was like, okay. So I, you know, my second meeting finished and I picked up lunch and I was at Lisa's place and and I looked at the AHS app to see what the wait yeah, times were. Right. And it was like two and a half hours at urgent care. And it was 44 minutes at the children's. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was like, the children's it exactly. is. Um, so we went there and I had Harper in tow. And I dropped her off at Emily's backyard, which is that little like play area that kids can be in. They can be there for like an hour and a half. And when it's only a 44 minute wait time, and I'm pretty sure at this point I'm being a mostly paranoid mom, mm-hmm. um, I figure we'll easily be in and out in the hour and a half. And um, we were nearing on that hour and a half time and we hadn't seen the doctor yet. And so I, but Ev was moved back into a room. So I went and grabbed Harper and brought her back. And the doctor said, um, like he kind of checked her and said, he didn't think it was appendicitis, but he wasn't comfortable with the amount of pain she was in. So right. he wanted to, 
um, do an ultrasound. So I called my husband and I was like, you're going to need to come get Harper. I'm going to be here longer than you think. And I had like texted my best friend, Holly, and I'm like, Ooh, we're at the hospital, like just complaining. And Mike came and got Harper and Evelyn went for her ultrasound. And I remember kind of talking to the ultrasound tech, letting her know, like, I feel like I'm being silly being here. Hmm. And, uh, <laughs> when we left the room, the ultrasound tech said to me, um, don't worry, mom, you made the right choice bringing her in. So I, I've told this story so often, but I walked back down the hallway to her room with Evelyn feeling so vindicated. I was like, it is appendicitis. And I was like, it's going to be that like gross, leaky, mushy banana kind that they like had to do surgery on right away. Like I felt so vindicated and we got back to the room and Ev was kind of sitting in the bed and the doctor came in and he sat down Hmm. and something in my brain kind of was like, this is not like doctors don't sit. And then he said, are we able to call your husband back in? And like Harper was a medical kiddo. So we've been in and out of ORs and we've done all sorts of stuff. Like, and he wouldn't know that, but I'm thinking like, I, if this is, you're taking her up to the OR immediately and removing her appendix, Mike doesn't need to hold my hand through this. Like I, (laughs) I'll be fine. And so I said to him, sure, but you need to tell me why. And he kind of shifted and positioned himself. So I think so that Evelyn couldn't see my face. And he said, we found a large mass. And in that moment, like everything after that, like, you know, when you watch those Mm -hmm. war movies and everything's kind of like snapshot, that's how everything feels after that. Like they're just all snapshot memories. So I remember him Mm -hmm. saying like, I'll sit with Ev and you go out and make the calls you need to make. And I remember going out in the hallway and it's like a busy ER. So I went in the bathroom and I closed the door and called my husband and he answered and I, nothing, no sounds would escape my voice uh, or my mouth. And he misses, you're scaring me, he said. And so I like something in me then snapped back in. And I was able to tell him like, they found a mass, you need to come. And I'm like in the bathroom and it's echoing back at me as I'm talking. So it's like, I'm hearing it all over again. So I got back to the room and there was a social worker and an oncologist there waiting for me. And like, that was fast. Like (laughs) things don't move that fast in a hospital unless something is serious. And so the oncologist said that he wanted to have a CT scan done and the social worker just was kind of hanging about like to be a support person. So she kept like popping out around corners, like, do you want coffee or tea? And like, just because I was alone. Yeah. And this is like big, shocking, scary news. And so Mike arrived. It felt like he might as well been coming from Edmonton. Mm -hmm. Like it felt like hours and hours and hours before he showed up and it wasn't, but it just time just moves in a weird way in those moments. And so Mike arrived just as Ev was going in for her CT. And so he went in the room with her and I like called my sister-in-law and talked to the social worker a little bit and just like trying to process everything. And the oncologist went in and watched the screen as they were doing the CT 
And like I've spent enough time around hospitals to know they don't do that unless they want to know in that moment what is happening. And so Ev finishes the CT and goes back to her room in the ER. And the oncologist a couple of minutes later comes and gets Mike and I and takes us to a dark, quiet room down a hallway. Yeah. <laughs> and you know from movies and TV when they take you to the dark, quiet room that you're not getting the news you want to hear. Mm-hmm. And that was the first of many times we sat in a dark, quiet room over Ev's 17, almost, she was like three days shy of 18 months mm-hmm. of treatment when she passed away. So we sat in that dark, quiet room and they said, this is cancer. And they pulled up an image and they showed us. And that tumor was so freaking big that we just could not believe it. Like I remember going, it was like the size of a, like a softball, like a large grapefruit. It was 11 by 13 centimeters. And Ev was barely 10. She was this like bean pole of a thing. And I remember going back to her room in the ER and having her lift up her shirt and looking at her and being like, how do I not see Mm -hmm. this? And even, you know, the following week at home, my girlfriend who's an RN had come over to visit and I was like, have lift your shirt up, let Auntie Megan see. And being like, see, Megan, it doesn't, her waist doesn't quite curve in as much there. And Megan's like, no, that is your brain yeah, you seeing see things. It. You cannot see this. You did not miss something. But it was so big. And the reason why she started having pain was because the tumor had basically reorganized her organs inside her body, kind of like when you're pregnant. Yeah. And it had pushed her kidney up into her rib cage and her liver down into her pelvis. And that pushing was causing pain. And that's why she was complaining. And so when we, you know, hindsight bias, when we look back, we can see maybe a few warning signs as early as the spring. Um, but stuff you would never have pieced together without the whole picture. So things like when she was running, she'd get a stitch in her side, but she was also 10 years old and running a 10 K. Yeah. So it seemed normal that she would get a stitch in her side. (laughs) Like, you know, so things like that, we can kind of see little hints of like that might have been this, but it wasn't until it was, had done enough growth that it was creating consistent pain that she complained about it. Were you able to pretty quickly absolve yourself of that? Like, oh no, okay. I still hang on to it. I still think about this time in the June, which was a couple months prior, where she had complained of pain in her side, and I took her to the walk-in clinic. And I wonder all the time if I took her to the hospital that day instead of a walk-in clinic, would they have found it? Would that have been enough? time to have saved her. That is such a dangerous place to live in. Oh, it is. Yeah, it is. And I try to remind myself that like, I, first of all, I'm not the only person in her life. So other people are spending significant amounts of time with her. Nobody could see it. Like that was one resounding thing. Actually, when we told people, they kept saying to us, but I just saw her. Yeah. She was, she was healthy like nobody could see any of this happening. Even like a couple of weeks earlier, we'd had an incident. It was so hot that week. It was like 35, 36 degrees every day. And she passed out. And my friend who's a pediatrician was standing there when it happened. And we just thought it's heat exhaustion, but actually it was probably cancer. 
right? But even a pediatrician yeah. was spending time with her and didn't see anything. Like, you know, we we look at that, and but it is like, I think as a mother, I feel like this child was gifted to me and yeah. my job was to ensure she had a perfect, beautiful, maybe not perfect. I don't think no. there's such a thing as that, but mm-hmm. to have had a beautiful life and to protect her and to know her. And so I do have to often reconcile for myself that just because I didn't catch it doesn't mean I wasn't taking care of her. Oh God, of course not. Yeah. But I think you have those feelings, especially as a mom, those things come up. Like you, you carry, I think a burden of responsibility as a mother that maybe other people wouldn't for your child. And and There's that, a reason why it's called mom guilt and not dad guilt. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, like, I definitely have moments um, where I wonder. Yeah. Um, but I also think that's, like, a very natural thing to do and yes. a very normal thing to do. And I'm not stuck in that space. Right. Yeah, so that's it's the important healthy. Mm-hmm. I think we talked about this briefly when we were planning this conversation, like, the notion of, like, somebody's grief being worse than somebody else's yeah, grief. That's, and it's such a... It's such a challenging thing, even when we're having these conversations, because mm-hmm. I think there's, there's, um, you know, even for me, Chris has this disease and it's a horrible disease. And at the same time, I still feel like I want to take, like, I need to be so careful with how mm-hmm. I talk to you because your grief is different than my grief. And I, that's why I asked you like, well, do you use the word journey? Like what offends you? What words upset us? Right. Yeah. It's so talking about grief is so loaded. Yeah. Yeah. Because nobody really knows how to do it. Yeah, exactly. So when Chris was diagnosed, I learned pretty quickly. I could not be a part of other people processing his diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And so very quickly, mm-hmm. I, I, after telling a couple people in person and having that just like sink me for the rest of the day. So for me, I learned, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to, I wrote an email before we saw somebody new that we had that we hadn't seen since we were ready to start telling people i would tell i would send the email and then mm-hmm. i would text them please check your email mm-hmm. and follow the instructions so just yeah. basically like here's where we're at with this mm-hmm. you you you're going to take your time to process this but what we need from you is to be hopeful mm-hmm. to believe in the treatment mm-hmm. that he's getting and that's how you can help us yeah and I wonder if you can just kind of tell me like what what was, you know, what was your thought process and how you wanted to share this with people when she was first diagnosed? We were really careful in what we shared initially. Um, like we didn't tell people she was stage four at first yeah. because I didn't want to carry the burden of other people's feelings. Yes. That's why I wrote the email. Yeah. I couldn't do that. Yeah. Um, my sister-in-law, Cheryl, was amazing. She made an Evelyn Facebook page. And we just kept directing people to that because part of what happens is everybody is is concerned Mm -hmm. and wants to check in. So, but on the receiving end of that, what they don't know is that their text message asking me for an update is the 25th text message I've received that day. And you just are like... I can't keep repeating this over mm-hmm. and over and over again. I can't keep answering the same questions. I My phone is just off the ringer. Yeah. Like it mm-hmm. just is constant. Like 
buzzing, 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 buzzing. And it's overwhelming. It's really mm-hmm. overwhelming. And I'm not saying don't check in on your people. I'm just saying don't be offended the, if they don't, don't reply. Don't be offended yeah. if they don't reply, but also read the room. Yeah. So so have they told you there is a source for communication? Yes. Then go to that source. Yes. Yes. Right. So so we had this Facebook page that my sister-in-law set up and she's a, she's a brilliant writer. And so she would write updates and posts for me and post them on my behalf. And, and what that meant was then it freed up space in my mind and in my heart to take care of myself and my family mm-hmm. because it, it caused a lot of people to stop texting mm-hmm. or emailing or DMing. Mm-hmm. Um, because the source of information was all right there. And people could comment on that post. And then I could read it in my time when I was ready, when I, when Mm -hmm. I had the capacity to do it. Um, That's not to say that like all the text messages and DMS and stuff stopped. And you know what? They shouldn't because there is that community piece as well. That's important. But what it did was it filtered out a lot. Yeah. A lot of the extra, which was so, so helpful. Um, And then I turned our, my Instagram public. It was private always Mm -hmm. just this tiny little Instagram I had because my family doesn't live here and I wanted them to have access to photos and stories Mm -hmm. and memories. But I just had this like calling really early on in our journey that I was supposed to live in the opposite spirit. And to me, like living the opposite spirit meant that like when we wanted to cry, we would dance. Sometimes we were crying while we were dancing, but we were just finding like, light in the fractures of the darkness. And, and, um, I, in that opposite spirit, cause I kind of wanted to curl away and hide. I chose to step out. Mm. And so our page became public and I began sharing our story on there. And that became increasingly significant and important. The more we learned about childhood cancer and some of the injustices happening there. Um, so, with a public profile, you're sharing your story, you're reaching out to, to the masses really. And just like letting them know this is what's happening. This is what we're seeing. This is what needs to change. And for me, it enabled me to build an incredible community of other like oncology and medical families, not just oncology, but just medical families in general. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of support network from people who get it, who are living and journeying Mm -hmm. hospital life and, and that sort of thing was incredibly important, but also what it did was it gave me a space. Mm -hmm. Um, I found it really cathartic. I treated it at times and I still do almost like a journal where I like I have like this thought and I need to get it out and I'm going to write it. And sometimes it sits in my drafts for a few days before I post, but it's like there. And so it's out and it's like, it was so good for me to Mm -hmm. have that space and is still today. So good for me to have that space. Um, It's creating community. It is healing my heart Mm -hmm. and also we're creating impactful change in yeah. so many areas that need that need change. It it reminds me like what you said so much of why I mean why we're doing this right here. Like mm-hmm. I never would have started this if yeah. it wasn't for for Chris being diagnosed and and I immediately started telling our story. Yeah. on my blog and we have family far away like you and so for me it was at first it was absolutely first just catharsis. It was for yeah. me. It was how I was processing my feelings. Then it became 
uh, alleviating those those questions. Yeah, for because sure. even I don't want people to stop, like you said, I don't want people to stop talking to me. But it changed what they were saying. Yeah, because they knew how's Chris. They yeah. knew what's going on. They yeah. knew the latest thing we were dealing with. They didn't have to ask that. And so maybe the maybe and I don't know your experience with this, but I prefer statements from people mm-hmm. to questions. Oh, yeah. Like, yes. I'm thinking about you. I know. And you know what? That's one thing I've learned in like our medical journey. And this is true, not just of a medical journey, but I think anytime you know somebody who is in crisis, when you are in crisis, there and like there's studies about this, like this is a legitimate thing. Parts of your brain stop functioning and parts of like your like vascular system yeah. stop functioning. Like, so so becoming a decision maker is a challenge for people also because you have to make so many decisions in a foreign space, yeah. a space you just don't know. Exactly. Um, and so having one more decision to make becomes very complicated for mm-hmm. that person. And so when someone says to me like, Oh, how can I help? Oh my gosh. Well, let me tell you, I need help with about 152 things right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but is it okay to ask you to do that? No, maybe that's too much for you. Okay. I'm not going to ask you to do that. Like that's what your brain goes through. And so Mm -hmm. you go through this whole process. And then in the end, you're like, no, I think we're okay. I think we've got it under control. You don't have it under control. You just don't know how to assign a task. And I found that really overwhelming when people are like, what can I do for you? How can I help? Let me know if you ever need anything. Don't ever say that to a person in crisis, please. I'm begging you people Mm -hmm. that are listening to this. If you know someone in crisis, come to them with a statement. Yes. I'm going to make your family a meal. I will be delivering it Friday at five o'clock. If you're not going to be home, let me know so I can put it in a cooler so it stays cool on your fridge. Do you have any allergies or foods you hate? Period. Period. And then that person can reply back. And you know what they do? They reply back and say, oh my gosh, thank you so much. I really appreciate the offer. We are not going to be home. The cooler is great we are allergic to cheese. Yeah. Like how know? many lasagnas did you yes. get? Just yeah. I'm saying like, <laughs> we, right. we're tired like, of lasagna. <laughs> yeah. And please don't bring us lasagna. Yeah. <laughs> no. And that's the thing. Like, and that person now, the way they've said that there's a, a definable action. Yes. Absolutely. One of the hardest parts of Chris's diagnosis for us was figuring out what and how Mm-hmm. to tell mm-hmm. our kids who were seven and four at the time. Yeah. A whole other layer for you because this yeah. was happening to Evelyn. Yeah. But I wonder what you did tell her yeah. and Harper about what was happening as it was happening. We were really careful in what we said um, because our kids only experience at that point was Mike's dad who passed away from cancer. It's a scary word. It is. And, and, um, their only knowledge was that like you die from this. Yeah. Right. So we had a kind of explicitly told the doctors until you are 100% absolute certainty that this is cancer. I do not want the words cancer uttered in front of her. Yeah. Just not period. It's mm-hmm. not happening until we know for sure. Cause right. I don't want to put her through that. Mm-hmm. This so perfectly defines our children Evelyn is very, like I said before, kind of pragmatic, a yeah. little bit serious, a little bit silly. Mm-hmm. Like um, Harper is now, I didn't really get a chance to describe Harper before. Harper is goofy and silly. 
Um, Harper is like just this ball of joyful energy always. Mm -hmm. And Harper is so loving and so empathetic and even to a fault because sometimes she just, especially when she was younger, would say really dumb things, just hoping it would make you feel better. So we had been to the hospital for an appointment. And at that point, we not just knew it was cancer because we still had not said to the girls, this is cancer. Mm -hmm. Because then we made the decision until we know what we are facing down, we don't want to burden them with this. Mm -hmm. So it was not until we knew what type of cancer and what approximately the treatment plan was going to look like that we were wanting to sit down and tell the girls. So we had gone to the hospital for an appointment and this was like, deciding like this was like to learn what type of cancer it was at this appointment. And so we had gone in and the doctors kind of saw Evelyn and then they talked to Mike and I on our own. And we were walking through the parking garage of the hospital. We get to the car. I remember this moment just like so clearly. And we got in the car and Evelyn just very matter of factly from the back seat said, so I have cancer, right? And we weren't like, we didn't know for sure what type of cancer yet. We knew for sure it was cancer. Yeah. We just didn't know what type. And I said, and I looked in the rearview mirror because I was in the driver's seat. We hadn't left. We were still in our parking space. And I looked in the rearview mirror and made eye contact with her. And I said, yes, sweetie, you have cancer. We don't know what type yet. We don't know what treatment's going to look like, but yes, it is cancer. And Harper with her, like, so Ev is feeling like a bit, like you could see yeah. this wash of like yeah, all the feelings across mm -hmm. her face, like literally just flashed across and Harper pipes up from her car seat. She was so tiny yeah. still. She was like in a car seat. Mm -hmm which is crazy to me because she's like a giant, almost 10 year old now, but she said, Oh, Ev, don't worry. I think you'll look great with a bald head. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and you're just like, Oh, this is not like, we didn't even know if she would lose her hair at that point. Yeah, right. Man. So we're just like, Oh no. Oh no. And Ev just looked like darted to Harper like, with this like up. death glare. <laughs> and Harper was like, what? And Evelyn, you've always been a hat wearer anyways. <laughs> and, and at that point, all four of us just kind of like laughed because I mean, honestly, it was, it was like so endearing and sweet. And once you got over that initial like Harper, mm. You're like, she's just trying. She's yeah. just trying to support and love her sister. And she's just like journeying it with her as best as her little six-year-old yeah. heart knows how. Yeah. And God bless that kid. But she just, yeah. And, and you've saying, always like, been a hat wearer anyways. <laughs> and like, saying like, hey, this is going to be okay. Yeah. That was yeah. her way of saying that, right? Like, and this I is going to be okay. Like that hat wearing comment, just, you know, we all just kind of laughed because we were like, actually, yeah, she has she always been a hat wearer. <laughs> she has always liked hats and always worn them. But it was just this crazy little moment. So in that moment, that was just the like, like yeah. brutal honesty, you know, mm -hmm. and you, we always used language appropriate to their age. 
but we were always honest. It was always like a first this, then this. Right. So we never exposed her to too many steps ahead of time, even though we had kind of a roadmap of what the next few years were going to look like. We always just, you know, treated it just very matter of fact and very honest. And when things weren't going well, Ev knew anyways, because she didn't feel good. So she knew it wasn't going well. So we never really had to like cater any of those conversations to her. When it got really hard was when she relapsed because. So she went into like. She never made it into remission. She had a relapse during treatment. So. Okay. Partway into treatment, she, which that was in the December. So a year and a bit into treatment. Well, actually it was the November, sorry, that they found new tumors. Okay. And. So new tumors mean relapse Mm -hmm. and during treatment is pretty bad. And currently for neuroblastoma, the kind of cancer Evelyn had, there's no cure yet for a neuroblastoma relapse. So we knew we were more likely than not dealing with a death sentence at that point. And do you tell your child that, or do you not tell your child that we chose at that time not to tell her? We told her that treatment would be changing, that we were trying to come up with a new plan. We were honest with her that the treatment that they had been doing was not working the way they wanted it to work. Mm -hmm. But I did not want my 11-year-old walking around waiting to die. And also, we believe in miracles. Yeah. We, We do. Like, we wholeheartedly believe in miracles. And so we were stepping out with audacious hope that we would get a miracle and there was options for other types of treatment. And our hope was always that she would be able to receive one of those experimental treatments. And she'd be one of those kids we heard about that like was no evidence of disease now for five years after receiving this. And we just were like, that's the hope we're stepping out in. And the doctors have to be very pragmatic and very honest and tell you that without a miracle, this is not what's going to happen for you. Um, but we believed in miracles and, and we told them very, very outright, we believe in miracles. And so we will keep working on this and, and hope that we get one. And if you are not capable of walking alongside us in this audacious hope, then you are not the person to be caring and treating for her anymore. And our doctor stepped out and hope with us. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and helped us find alternatives. Um, unfortunately, Evelyn passed away before she was able to receive one of those alternatives because cancer is an asshole. Yeah. And she had a tumor that grew in her heart over a matter of a couple of days. Jeez. It went from like marble size to fist size in about 72 hours. And that is what killed her. And, um, it was very fast and very unexpected. And we did have to tell her she was going to die, which is the single worst conversation I've ever had and probably will ever have in my life. (laughs) Because how do you tell your beautiful 11 year old that she's going to die? But she knew she could feel it. And she said, am I dying? And we just said yes. And it was much like that first day when she asked, do I have cancer? And the flash of all the feelings went across her face. 
And I climbed into bed beside her and I held her. And I just said, you are safe and you are loved. And we are going to be here with you. You will never be alone. And you will be taken care of. And you know, you know what death looks like. You know you are going to heaven and you are going to be with Jesus. And it is going to be wonderful for you. And we will miss you forever and we will love you forever. (laughs) And I'm sorry that this is what's happening. And that was it. After that, we just stayed in that room as a family. Um, We called our friends and family and let them know um, that things weren't going well. And then we called them all back a few hours later and let them know that it was beyond not going well, that she was on very limited time. And initially I was alone when they told me she was going to die. Mike was in Calgary and I was with Evelyn in Toronto, hoping to receive that treatment. And um, so Mike came and when Mike and Harper came, it was, that we were going to get her stabilized so that we could get back home and that we had days, maybe weeks at best. And by the time Mike arrived about five hours later, we knew we weren't even going to get her stabilized to get her home, that we had hours, maybe days. And so we gave our parents and siblings and like my best friend and her husband, the option to come to Toronto to to, to have proper goodbyes with her if they wanted. And they did all, everybody who was capable to come came. Some people knew that even if they left in that minute that they wouldn't make it in time. So they, they didn't come. But um, our family that lives here in Calgary came and my parents flew um, from Portland, which was a disaster because um, crossing borders on last minute flights and, there was a snowstorm and my dad, my mom and dad wound up on different flights and my dad got rerouted and my dad didn't arrive until hours and hours and hours after she passed away, which was absolutely gut wrenching for him. I know. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah. And we just spent that day trying to create as much peace as we could because she came into this world held and loved and full of joy and she deserved to leave that way. Mm -hmm. So um, we woke Harper up early in the morning because Ev was getting less and less lucid. And so we woke her up early in the morning and I told her that Evelyn was dying and the hospital helped us facilitate goodbyes between them. And uh, then Shortly thereafter, some of our family arrived and they all kind of gave her hugs and kisses. She wasn't really awake anymore at that point. Um, And then I was in, after Harper had said her goodbyes, I climbed into bed with her. And then um, shortly thereafter, I asked the nurse to put her in my arms and I just held her the way you would hold your child and talked to her and sang to her and told her stories she would every once in a while request like a certain song or something. So we would play the music she wanted to play. There was a show she liked that we had on in the background for a while. Um, We just kind of did everything we did until she took her last breath. And 
it was horrible, but it was peaceful. And it was, I know that we did the best for her. I held her for quite a few hours afterwards um, because I would never get to hold her again. <laughs> so, but eventually you just know, like, the time is right. And so we, with my husband and I, with the nurse, like, bathed her and dressed her and um, got her ready for the funeral home to come. And then we kind of packed everything up and that was in the room and got ready to go back. We were staying at the Ronald McDonald house and we walked like, and it was like a march, like with yeah. Mike's parents and brother and my, my mom and Harper and my best friend and her husband. And we walked all back to the Ronald McDonald house together and it was blizzarding. And I was in like, so my girlfriend, Carol was there. She had flown in to help me with MIBG because you couldn't be in the room 24 seven because of radiation exposure with the treatment she was, that was she was supposed to receive. Yeah. And so I had three friends that were going to come and kind of each do a couple of days mm -hmm. so that they could spell me off. And so Carol had arrived amongst all of this and she had like arrived excitedly and she was going to like spend the next three days watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer with <laughs> Evelyn and like exposing her to that. <laughs> and, uh, she was like so incredible in that time. Like she just knew it wasn't her turn to grieve. And so she was doing things like buying coffee and bringing it into the room for everybody and forcing me to take sips of water and, and stuff and just like carried us through all of that. And after I've passed away, I needed to change my clothes. Um, because when people die, things exit their body. Yeah. And I was covered in that. And so she had run back to Ronald McDonald house and got me clothes and brought it back. But it was like capri pants and I was in sandals and it was blizzarding. And I remember walking back and I don't remember feeling cold. Hmm. Like your whole, it's like an out of body experience. Like everything in you is just numb. And like every footstep felt heavy yeah and we just like prodded our way back mm -hmm. to the house and just in utter and complete shock and devastation mm -hmm. um the ronald mcdonald house was beautiful the way they handled it we arrived and they knew everything that was going on and they had been so kind and accommodating helping us sort it all out and like family coming in and like helping yeah. book hotel rooms and do like, they're just above and beyond. And, and they let us know when we arrived, there's a star in the yard. We can light it for you or you can light it for yourself. Um, but we will light it in memory of Evelyn tonight. And so my husband, Mike said, I, I'd like to light it. So we walked out there and he lit it. And then he asked somebody to take a picture of us. <laughs> and I look at that picture and I'm like, Oh, the devastation yeah. in that photo. And like, I can see that I'm wearing like capri pants and sandals <laughs> and we're so just standing there, the three of us beside the star. And you're like, just blank. Yeah. I like, I can't even remember if I smiled or not. Like, I think I had this moment where I was like, do you smile? Cause it's a photo or do we like stay somber? Like you kind yeah. of think about all the weird things. Absolutely. Um, but Ronald McDonald house left that star lit 24 seven. And as long as we were in the house, that star stayed mm -hmm. lit. 
And it was so lovely because it was just this like beautiful little beacon of hope and, and kindness for us. Yeah. And like, you know, we, we did have to have these conversations all along with the girls. Um, and we were honest with them all along, but definitely some were harder than others. Mm -hmm. And we still have to have conversations with Harper. She still asks some questions. Um, you know, when Evelyn passed away, like Harper was like, when we told her she was passing away, she just was like, well, I don't want her to die. Can't you just give her some food? Just give her some food, give her something to drink. Like she just couldn't understand. Right. And she's just so little. And so that part is really hard. And that's where like social workers are amazing people because they help guide you through that process and make it as better as it can be. Yeah. Like no part of it is good, but yeah. there's just this like kindness and this graciousness that they extend. And I mean, to be honest with you, the social workers we encountered along our journey were immensely helpful in teaching us. Like, these are the things you can say. These are the things that will help them understand. These are the processes we can work through. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we like, didn't just make this all up on our own. The conversations were always helped with some level of guidance. Yeah. And it, I mean, it's largely those moments are why I've gone back to school with the hopes of becoming a social worker, because I just feel so grateful for what they gave to us. And I feel this very strong calling to be that mm -hmm. for somebody else. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we were talking about it earlier, like our stories, our stories are so important to share yeah. because somebody will land on your page one day or on my page one day and go, Oh, that sounds like my story. Okay. My feet are going to keep moving. Yeah. My heart is going to keep pumping that's why I share. Mm -hmm. And, and because there just needs to be hope for people to know that like, we are going to be okay. We are not alone. Yeah. And that's like, that's why community is so important too. Absolutely. And yeah. we have to talk about these most desperately hard parts of our life. Yeah. Because when somebody finds this conversation or your Instagram or my Instagram or whatever. And they say, Oh, I don't think I can keep going. Yeah. It hurts too much to keep going. Mm -hmm. Maybe they can just say today it hurts too much to yeah. keep going, but maybe tomorrow I'll wake up yeah. and I can put my feet on the ground and yeah. I can step, get up out of bed. Right. Yeah. Like Chris is ALS genetic. Yeah. So my kids might have this gene. So knowing that you can keep going, sorry, after you lost Evelyn, is really important to me. Yeah. I understand that, that. I think this is the worst nightmare for me. If I lost Chris, I would be devastated. It would change me forever. But I know I would keep going because I have my kids. Yeah. The thought of losing my kids. Mm-hmm. That I'm not sure I could survive. And so the, what you're giving people is so important. And so I'm going to get myself together here, but <laughs> like I want losing, to say thank you. Losing a child is like, 
you know, I often say like when your baby is born and you hold that baby for the first time, you see an entire life that baby grows up, that baby gets married and has babies of their own. Yeah. And you get to be like a grandma and they like, these kids go to university and Evelyn wanted to be an architect. So yeah. Evelyn would have gone to university and become an architect. I really believe it. And because that if nothing, that kid was determined to just do whatever yeah. she wanted to do. <laughs> um, you know, so she was going to grow up and be an architect and she was going to have children and she was going to have a spouse and she was going to have a career and she's just going to live like an amazing life. And yeah. and when you hold your babies, that's what you see. Yeah. You see an entire beautiful life for them. Yeah. And, you know, you that's your narrative. Yeah. And that's a beautiful narrative. Um, But I, my narrative with Evelyn now has shifted yeah. and I got 11 and a half years. Um. I've had to, in my grief, learn to shift my narrative a little bit. Initially, my conversation was, I only got 11 years. Yeah. It's so unfair. I only got 11 years. And definitely, it still feels unfair. Absolutely. Because I planned for a life, and I, I only got 11 years of that life. But there is so much gratitude in that 11 and a half years of, like, beauty and wonder and learning and joy and love, just so much love that I have to sit in that gratitude yeah. and not see all the miss. And I for sure, like lately, you know, the transition into fall. Yeah, I was going to And all the back school photos yeah. and, you know, all of her friends turning 13 and going to grade eight. Yeah. And I for sure see a hole. I see the miss in that. You know, we're camping and Ev's three best friends walk by. But I I have to sit in that space of gratitude for the 11 and a half years we got. Gratitude that she is missed in those friend groups. Gratitude that she had those friend groups. Yeah. That people loved her so much yeah. that they still come around. Her friends still come around. Even camping this summer, one of her friends... <laughs> slept over in the trailer. Oh. Like I just am so blessed to have all of those people who continue to speak her name and share her story and find joy in who she was and continues to be. And so, you know, you can feel this like immense amount of sadness, but there's also joy that comes alongside that. And like, I mean, I, I've talked about this so often. I'm sure parts of this people are like, Heather, can you stop repeating yourself? But I just feel like it's so important for people to know like joy is a gift. Yeah. Because joy is not a temporal feeling. Joy is not happiness. Mm -hmm. Happiness comes and goes. Happiness is often attached to or based off of things. Um, Sadness is the same. Anger is the same. You know, grief is the same. But joy is this thing that is like built up inside of you and it's attached to resilience. Mm -hmm. And I find if I find gratitude, I can find joy. And if I can find joy, I can continue to build my resilience. Mm -hmm. And so if I focus on that, mm -hmm then I'm able to move forward. And the thing is, is that 
joy is capable of being felt alongside other things. So I can be sad Mm -hmm. and have joy. Mm -hmm. I can be frustrated and have joy, you know, but I can't be sad and happy at the same time. And so you just have to like, find what is your joy for me? Joy is gratitude in 11 and a half years. Yeah. And if I cling to that gratitude, I Mm -hmm. cling to my joy. Yeah. And I think like a lot of people don't realize that. And a lot of people want you to be intensely sad all the time because it makes them comfortable to know that, oh, you're really sad. So you're grieving the right way. (laughs) Yeah. People want you to do things the way they want you to do them. Um, But that's not my journey and that's not my story. Mm -hmm. And mine is that, I'm clinging to gratitude of 11 and a half years so that I have joy so that I can keep moving forward. So I'm, you know, I think like everybody thinks, Oh, I could never survive the loss of my child. I could never survive what you went through. But I think you have to also change the narrative of that too. And look at it and say, when you tell someone I couldn't survive the loss of my child, someone who has lost their child. Exactly. What that person hears is you didn't love your child enough because you are surviving it. But the fact of the matter is you don't have a choice, but to survive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You don't. So like, you have to look at it from that perspective and like, honestly, and I say this all the time and I, I don't want it to be misinterpreted, but like, thank God for Harper because she is the reason why. Yes. I get out of bed each day. She is the reason why we continue to find joy in our home, why we continue to have experiences in our home, Mm -hmm. because Harper still deserves to have a bright, beautiful, happy, and joy-filled life. And is sadness woven into the fabric of that? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. For all three, Harper, Mike, and I, Mm -hmm. sadness is woven into our home, but we don't have to be stuck in that. Mm -hmm. And so we, we are surviving because we three have each other and need each other Mm -hmm. and we need each other to survive. And as we do that, we're just finding like light in the shadows together. Yeah. I think it's such a, a common thing for people to say. And I mean, I have just bawling basically said the same thing to you that like, I don't know if I could, if I could keep going and and i think that what we all learn when life deals us these shit hands yeah is that we are all capable yeah of so much more mm-hmm. pain mm-hmm. love yeah. happiness joy than we are ever than you ever think you yeah. are yeah right like yeah it feels like that would be too hard it feels like that's not survivable mm-hmm. But we are capable as humans yeah. of, of continuing on, yeah. you know, and I'm, and I say all the time because people, like I said, people have said similar things to me and I'm, and I always say that too, like, well, what's the choice? Yeah. Like, what is well, my choice? And there's like this piece, I think that like when you, I, I don't know if I was like always this tough <laughs> Oh no. or if, 
I'm like, talking about myself. I'm not like, talking. I didn't say, oh no, like, you were all this tough. Like, I don't know if I was always this tough and I just didn't like have to utilize yeah. it. Mm-hmm. And so it was just like sitting inherently inside of you waiting to be activated, yeah. like some kind of superhero power. Mm-hmm. Or if it was like that with the progression of it all, you built it. Like, I think honestly, there's just like a thing inside of all of us yep. that is capable. Mm -hmm. And just for a lot of us, we don't have to activate it or Mm -hmm. we have to activate it in different capacities. Yeah. And so I think in like a lot of ways, it's just like sitting in you waiting Mm -hmm. for its moment to be used. Yeah. But I also think like the more you go through it all, the more, maybe the better you become at utilizing your superpower for lack of a better term. (laughs) Like, and I think there's, and I'm not a big believer in like the steps of the stages of grief, but I think there's, I, I, I did a podcast episode with, um, with someone who I think that once wrote that the stages of grief were, I think she wrote it when we're like, we're like a scatter plot for her, mm-hmm, not like, mm-hmm. you know, and it's true. I think we all experience all of those different well, emotions. And the person who times. wrote the stages of grief originally. Yeah. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, right? Yeah, yeah. Wrote them and said like, there's these five stages of grief, but the intention of it was never that like you went through one, two, three, four, five, that you went through like one, four, three, five, mm-hmm. three, 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 four, two, yes, one, exactly. five, like yeah. That it, but people misinterpreted that. But also, do you know that that person later on, after those five stages of grief were written, lost a child? Yeah, and da- added in a six. David Kessler, yeah, right? Like David they wrote, it wrote the yeah. sixth meaning stage of grief of of meaning. Yeah, yeah. and so that's so interesting too, because I think again, like that lived experience transitioned there. Even that person's who yeah. like wrote the stages yeah. of grief mm-hmm. transitioned their interpretation of it too. And like, honestly, for me, I probably spend more time in the meaning than in any other phase of the grief, because I, I find healing through action. So for me, action is meaning. Mm -hmm. And so the projects we do and the awareness we raise and the stories we keep telling and, and all the things doing this, you know, yeah. this to me is bringing meaning absolutely through action. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas my husband finds meaning through other aspects, but I think he spends more time in meaning than the other stages as well. Yeah, I think for both of us, it's a much more significant. Yeah. Yeah. And Mike is also a lot quieter than me. I'm like loud and obnoxious and <laughs> like all over the place emotionally. I cry at Hallmark commercials. Like <laughs> I watch serial killer documentaries. Like I just have all the things. <laughs> Whereas Mike is like so even and balanced and like calm that actually initially in our grief, it was quite unnerving to me when Mike would cry because mm. Mike was never a crier. And now I'll like go walk into his office and he'll be like, he's not like crying. Like I weep and wail, but Mike is like just leaky. Yeah. But at first I was like, what, are, why is he doing this? Like, is he he's not, not okay? the crier. Yeah. He's not okay. He's not doing well. Mm-hmm. I need to help him. He needs better therapy. He yeah. needs like all these things. But no. actually I think it's just for him, 
he, like he's learned to acknowledge and live through emotions in a different capacity than he ever did before. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, you know, 14 years of marriage at that point, Mm-hmm. And I'd seen him cry like twice. Right. <laughs> so it was like this very weird thing mm-hmm. to see him like cry every time I walked in a room. And so learning, and and that's like the crazy thing about grief is that like everybody does it differently. Everybody's experience is valid to, yeah. to their story mm-hmm. and their journey. And like, I think we want people to do things a certain way and not just in grief, just in general, like through a crisis, we want people to do things the way we think is right. But, but that's not what works yeah. for everybody. And I know even in like, a, there's a grief group we meet with once a week, a parental grief group. And, and like, there's people in the group who say like, I can't look at videos of my child. Yeah. I'll be done for days if I look at videos. Meanwhile, I start every single day by looking at pictures and videos of Evelyn because that's what's healing for me. Mm-hmm. And and look at us, both of us lost children. Mm-hmm. Both of us have been around the same time as each other. Both of us are journeying grief together, mm-hmm. but doing it very very differently. And and I think we need to start looking at those things and start saying like the narrative you want to write over a person's story is not helping them allow mm-hmm. them to write their own narrative and then walk beside them. Even if it makes you uncomfortable, yes. even if it's not the way you think they should be doing it, mm-hmm. just walk beside them. If you truly want to be a helper in crisis, just walk beside them. Yeah. I wanted to talk about that because you, you posted the other day on Instagram, um, words matter. Mm-hmm. And then you wrote on, you said, Evelyn died. She didn't fail at treatment, which we already talked about. Treatment failed her. Mm-hmm. It didn't work, but Evelyn worked incredibly hard. The cancer progressed in a, nev- in a negative way, but Evelyn never did. She was positive and bright and joyful. Cancer didn't decide our attitude. We did. And we chose to find light in the shadows. Mm-hmm. And we've talked a little bit now already about words. Yeah. And I wondered what words have been and continue to be helpful to you and what words are not. Yeah. Like, I think I touched on that a bit earlier. Like I really just recoil at the phrase, she lost her battle to cancer. That one's really hard for me. That's part of why I wrote that post was because I just am like tired of hearing people say that. Um, I hate when people are like, I could never survive this because to me it implies that because I'm surviving it, I didn't love her enough. Mm. Um, my grief isn't deep enough, you know, um, that sort of thing. Like, and I know that people are like well-intentioned and they're just trying to like dig in the trenches with you and empathize, but you just need to be careful with what you say because your words matter. Like they have an impact on the person Mm -hmm. you're, you're trying to journey this with. And I, I think for me, if ever, I don't know that there's like a specific word or phrase or, or thing that like makes me feel better, but I just love so much when people like talk about Evelyn or share a story about her. There's nothing better than when something happens that I didn't know Mm. about her, like a short, a story or a photo or a video is shared of her that I haven't seen because when your child dies, you think, Okay, I don't get any more new memories. And when you share with me about her, if it's something I didn't know, 
I now have a new memory of her, which is like the biggest gift. It's so special and so remarkable. And so like, for example, um, the girls school they went to closed this year. Mm -hmm. And so Harper's at a new school and a lot of the resources from that school that closed transferred over to the new school. And the teacher who's the librarian is a friend of mine. And her son was one of Evelyn's like inner circle kind of friends. Mm -hmm. And she was going through and cataloging all the grade four books. And Ev was in grade four when she got diagnosed. And uh, as she was cataloging all these books, she found pages where the kids had signed their names. And there's pages where it's like Evelyn was here. And she took pictures of that and sent, and texted it to me and was like, look what I found. And if ever we wondered Harper was walking into the school alone, Harper's in grade four this year. Mm-hmm. We now know that Evelyn is there with her still, yeah. you know? And like those kind of things, that is the thing. Like, don't worry about saying her name in front of me that it's going to make me sad yeah. because like I haven't forgotten her. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't forgotten her name. It does not make me sad to hear her name. It brings me incredible joy. Yeah. Sometimes I'm going to cry at the memory. I'm sometimes going to cry at the loss. But when you speak her name and you tell me something about her that you loved or you recall a memory you had with her or you just share a piece of her with me, you are reminding me that she was here. Yeah in the best way that you can be reminded that someone was here. Yeah. It It is not hard in a bad way mm-hmm. to hear her name. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's such an important thing that all parents who, all, anybody who's lost anybody wants, yeah. wants everybody to know, like, I want to talk about this person. They didn't yeah. stop existing. Yeah. You wrote something the other day that really stopped. First of all, I said the thing to you and I'm very sorry. No, but you didn't say it. No, no, but you didn't say it in a... Like, I don't know how you are surviving. Yeah, yeah. Saying, thank you for showing me that I could survive. That you can survive. That's different. To me, it's when people say, like, for example, at Evelyn's birthday party, because we do her driveway dance party the last two years for her birthday. And someone said to me, I just... I wouldn't be able to do any of this because my grief would be too deep. You know, I, I couldn't survive this. Yeah. That's what I mean. Yeah. They're trying to say you're very strong. Yeah. And I don't even think I'm strong. Like maybe I am, but it's out of necessity. Absolutely. Like that's how we find out how strong we are. We'd never find out how strong we were if we're lifting weights, if we didn't try to lift a 50 pound dumbbell instead of a 30. (laughs) Right. And that's what you said about like the, 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 thing that we have in us and something, yeah. you know, turns that switch yeah, yeah. and then we find out how strong we are. So oh you are gosh. that strong. <laughs> yeah. You just are, it's like out of necessity. Yes. I'm not strong because I want to be, yeah. that's maybe a better totally. way to say I would it. love to be weak. <laughs> yeah. I would love to be weak. That yes. would be amazing if yeah. I was weak and not weepy all the time, but like it's, it's a, yeah. So you didn't say it in the way that's like bothersome if that makes sense. I understand. Yeah. You said it in a way of like, in a sense of gratitude, yeah. like you're showing me that I can survive this. Yeah. It, it's when people are like, oh, I could never, you yeah. know, I'm like, no, no, <laughs> you don't have a choice. Yeah. You're I going smile. to. I couldn't laugh. Yeah. I couldn't be happy. Oh, and let me tell you early on and still sometimes I do carry a bit of guilt. Like 
if I have a really big laugh about something, you just mm-hmm. feel like, oh, oh yeah, I shouldn't laugh like this. You're betraying your yeah, sadness. Yeah, you feel like you're betraying it in a way, for sure, mm-hmm. or betraying her yeah. or her memory in a way. Um, and I think that's a very common thing oh, yeah. of like grieving yes. people to say, like they carry those feelings of guilt yep. when they have happiness. The first day I didn't like cry. I remember thinking like, what's wrong with oh, me? What's wrong with me? Mm-hmm. Um, and that being said, like I do still cry most days, but there's yeah. definitely, there's less crying days. Um, my girlfriend Aditi uses this like analogy. That's so amazing. She said, grieving is like you've become a crumpled piece of paper. So like you can, the paper will never be the same again. Yeah, You can still write on it. You can still use it. You can smooth it out as much as you can. It's still going to be wrinkly. And though it's still going to have maybe a a corner curled up, like it's just not going to be as pretty as it was, Yeah, but it's still like a functional piece of paper. It's just not like it was this it's not smooth, pristine and flat, pristine piece of paper anymore. And yeah. I thought, like, whoa, that's a good one. Yeah. Take that piece of paper, you bunch it all up, you open it up, you can iron it, you can yeah. do all the things you want to do, but totally. it's still gonna have creases yeah. and wrinkles and and marks. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have a friend who in Ontario whose husband died a few years ago now of ALS. And she, her birthday was like last weekend. And I messaged her and I said, Hey, I I saw your Instagram post. You had a great weekend. I'm so happy that you had a great weekend selling, mm-hmm. celebrating your birthday. And she wrote me a few messages back saying the things they did and what was so great about it. And then she wrote me and she said, and of course it was still hard. Yep. And I wrote her back and I said, I know it's always hard. Yeah. You don't have to qualify. Yep. Like you don't have to like justify your happiness. You don't have to tell me, and I'm still sad. Like, I know you're always sad. Yeah. I'm just happy that you were, you had joy along with that. Yeah. But of course you're always sad. And I think that's such a disservice we do to people who have lost somebody. Like we should never have to try to prove to somebody that we are sufficiently sad. So I share on my Instagram something about Evelyn every Wednesday. And often there's mixed in on Fridays and whatever, but every Wednesday consistently, I share a photo, a video, whatever, and Mm -hmm. share a story about her or share like a piece of my grief or share the part of her I'm missing the most in that moment. I just share a piece of her every Wednesday. Evelyn passed away on a Wednesday, which is why I choose to do that. Cause initially what happened at first was Wednesdays were really hard for me. Every Wednesday I'd wake up and just like wait for 2 PM for that moment so I, as a cathartic thing, I just shared every Wednesday, here is a piece of my girl just to keep her in the world on the day she left it, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and it just felt really significant to do that on Wednesdays because I was giving a piece of her back on the day that she left. Yeah. And every Wednesday on my Instagram, I have a large unfollowing. Yes. <laughs> because... It makes people sad, I think. Yeah. And people just don't want you to be sad. But if you're not sad enough, then they get upset. <laughs> like you can't. You can't win. So you just have to like live in authenticity that way and just know like what I share on there. I share because it it makes me yeah. feel good to share it. And that space is like, I like I really like that analogy. Like, you know, it's if you are on my Instagram page or any social media page, 
Like you, it's because you've been invited in, but like, you don't have to come. So yeah. if you don't like what's there, you yeah. don't have to stay. But if you are finding value in it, then, then be there. Yeah. And I'm not going to stop talking about her because it's not about follower count to no. me. It is about my beautiful girl. Yeah. And, and I, and like we've talked about in this, like it is about community to me. Yeah. It is about creating a safe space for people who might land on a page similar or parallel to mine or the same page as mine, you know, like maybe somebody is sitting in a hospital right now being told their child has stage four neuroblastoma and they find my yeah. page and they find hope in that, that, that this is survivable regardless of, of if their child lives through yeah. cancer or not, like that's why I do it. It's not for the person who wants to unfollow mm -hmm. me on a Wednesday because the post yeah. is too sad. Yeah. And it's not for the person who wants to unfollow me on a Monday because the post is too happy. Yeah. You know, like it's, it's for me there. And if you want to be participatory, great. Yeah. I'm, I'm well, you are welcome always mm -hmm. in my space. You posted something, um, the other day that like, it really stopped me and I, and I keep thinking about it because it made me go, of course you said, I still have so much energy. That's mm -hmm. the word you used. I still have so much energy to parent yeah. Evelyn. Yeah. I was like, I have chills just saying it like, of course you do. Like that yeah. doesn't go away. Yeah, no, it doesn't. And, and that's, you know, for me, Again, like that's where the action comes in. Mm -hmm. So I have this like crazy amount of energy still to parent her. And so how do I redirect that energy? Well, I'm redirecting that energy through action. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's it's creating awareness. Like, I mean, I'm going to make a plug here, but like our government only gives our children yeah. – 4% of their cancer research dollars. Mm -hmm. Why are our children not worth more than 4%? Like this is absolutely insane to me and disheartening. Yeah. And so we are going to keep talking about it yep. so that hopefully one day somebody, maybe it's the per one of the people listening to this podcast today has enough influence, mm -hmm. but we're just going to keep talking yep. about it because somebody is going to hear it one day and go, what the crap? That is ridiculous. <laughs> we need to give our kids more than 4%. We are giving dogs more than we are giving our kids. And I am a fur mom. I love my dog immensely. If you spend even one minute on my Instagram page, <laughs> you will know I am ridiculous and embarrassing <laughs> how much I love my dog, but I love my kids more. Yeah. This is a human life and it deserves more than 4% of our government's effort. My energy of I need to parent this yeah. child still That's where it goes. is now funneled into projects like mm -hmm. that. I often say, like, if you don't have something to pull you, if you don't have your own personal connection to this disease, and a lot of people don't have one to ALS, a lot of people do, but a lot of people don't. Like, here's my family. Mm -hmm. Care about my family. Mm -hmm. And I think that is what you've done with Evelyn. Because I really do believe, like, the city, the way that they they care about Evelyn, like, it... Yeah. It has made such a huge difference. Yeah. When you got home um, from Toronto, you had Evelyn's funeral, and yeah. then the world literally closed down. And yeah. you are actually, like I've kept you here a long time, <laughs> and you're actually going today to pick up your mom at the airport. Yeah. Your parents live in the U.S. to see her for the first time since Evelyn's funeral. Since and March 15th, 2020. Yeah. And... I don't want to keep you too much longer, but I do want you to share with us like what 
it's not like you have another experience to say, oh, this is what grieving during not a pandemic looks like, but like, yeah. how do you think that the pandemic has impacted your grief? I mean, <sighs> the pandemic in so many ways is like a forced loneliness, like especially early on, right? Like, yeah. so when Evelyn passed away, the social workers from the hospital came over to Ronald McDonald house the next day just to like help us and, and stuff. And they were like, you know, it's going to feel counterintuitive, but like, you need to go on a vacation right away. You need to spend time with friends and family. You need to mm-hmm. like do things yeah. Um, because this kind of grief is so big and deep and heavy. You cannot do it without some distraction built in. Mm-hmm. So we like Harper, we were okay. Harper, where do you want to go? What do you want to do? Um, and Harper wanted to go to Hawaii. So we had planned a trip to Hawaii that we were going to leave a couple of days after the funeral and go for like a week or two and Mm -hmm. just like, again, build in some distraction. And like for us too, it's really tough. Like Evelyn passed away before we could have her wish trip, which Harper now missed that as well, because that's how the system works. Mm -hmm. Like it's for the sick kid, even though the whole family needed it. And like Harper feels like, that trip was just as important to her as it was to Evelyn and Mm -hmm. she doesn't get it now, you know? And so this trip to Hawaii was like really a big deal because Harper got to pick it and plan it and we're going to do all these things. And now we're like canceling flights Mm -hmm. and not going and staying home. And then like, it wasn't long after that before they were like, you can't have people in your house and you can't like all of that. Right. And like everything is shut down and, Like poor Harper, you know, she literally like, she lost her sister. She lost school, extracurriculars, playdates, visits with family, time with friends. And she she wound up getting really, really sick, like in the hospital sick. We got her a dog. (laughs) (laughs) And in the end, the dog has actually just been amazing for all of us. In particular, my husband, who still insists that the dog is just okay, but the truth is that he sleeps with the dog at night. So <laughs> if that's just okay, then fine. Um, but, you know, we we were kind of like, it was the opposite of everything we were told to do to manage our grief. Yeah. We had to do the opposite of. And like thank God for people and their creativity because people just kept like showing up, even though they couldn't physically show up, but like showing up emotionally in the most beautiful ways. So we would get like, still people would like send us a meal Mm -hmm. or send flowers or like we had Evelyn's birthday and people just showed up in droves, like financially to help us like raise this money for the hospital and like, show up to dance on the driveway with us Mm -hmm. and like volunteer. And I think about all the local businesses, like small businesses who have just been like, what do you need? What are we going to do? How can we make this happen? And like, we're just so lucky and blessed and and it's so special and remarkable um, how people just show up over and over again, you know, on the, the anniversary of Evelyn's birthday or of Evelyn's passing um, a couple of my girlfriends got together and, got like red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet flowers in separate vases and lined them up on my dining table. I got home and there was a rainbow of flowers. Like how lovely is that? Yeah. You know, so, so COVID like 
we want to rail against it and we want to be angry at it. And for sure, I have moments where I'm just like, today is one of those days where I'm like, I'm tired of this. Um, But there's something really beautiful about community and coming together that has happened in that people never let us feel alone, even when loneliness was forced. Mm. So even though we couldn't be physically present with them, people were still showing up. Yeah. And, and like, and I say showing up like emotionally, not physically. We weren't breaking rules. No. Don't call the police. Disclaimer. A disclaimer in there that we were, we were following Mm -hmm. the restrictions and the guidelines, but you know, we really were just like people show up emotionally in the most beautiful and creative of ways. And so while we were in a house by ourselves, we were never really alone. Yeah. And, I'm so grateful for that. I really am. Um, But I will say like, you know, March 15th. So we had Evelyn's funeral, March 14th and March 15th. They like closed schools and restaurants. And there was all this conversation about like borders closing and stuff. So like my parents, my sister, my brother, my nephews, they all just like packed up and left because they didn't know if they could get home, if they even stayed an extra 24 Mm -hmm. or 48 hours. And And that was the last time I saw them. Mm -hmm. And so my mom is arriving today and I'm probably going to cry like a little baby watching a Hallmark commercial (laughs) in the airport. Um, It's just going to be lovely. And I only get her for a few days, but I get her. So I'll, I am picking Harper up from school early and we are going to the airport to get my mom and it's going to be so good. But this is the thing, like I have not seen my family And in the time of my life when I needed them the most, when I was hurting the most, when like I just needed my mom to like make me a cup of tea and rub my back while I sobbed in my bed, she couldn't do that for me. And I know that's hard for her too. And I'm like also acutely aware of like, this is the first time my family will be walking into my home without her there, without her there. And like, for me, I think about how hard that was that first day when we got back from Toronto and I had to walk into the house and it was awful. And I know my mom, like, I mean, they were there for the funeral, so they have been in the home, Yeah. but like, not really, right? Like not you think like with the busyness of, yeah. of a funeral and, and all the distraction happening mm-hmm. in that time. So I, I know like there's going to be a lot of feelings this weekend, um, but we get to do them together at least. Yeah. And and that's going to be really, really good. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. The world is hard right now, especially. Yeah. And it yeah. can be very easy to see only the sad and only the bad and, mm-hmm. and, and to just kind of get just sucked under by that. And so I think that what Chris's diagnosis has done for us, and it sounds similar for you, is that like, it does show you the best of people. Oh yeah. And absolutely what you hold on to. Right. Oh gosh. Like, I mean, the beauty of people in all of this, like literally from the minute we told people when Ev was diagnosed until today, like the beauty of people has just shone through in so many incredible ways. And I mean, gosh, I'm, I don't want to, I cannot stand toxic positivity. So I feel like I have to disclaim with this that like, (laughs) 
for sure there has been ugliness. For sure people have said terrible, terrible things to me. But for every one person that says something gross to me, there's at least a hundred more that say something beautiful or acknowledge Evelyn or do something lovely for our family or do something lovely for someone else in the memory of Evelyn. Like Mm -hmm. I just, you know, I love it. Like Evelyn loved Frappuccinos. (laughs) And so we have like Frappuccino Fridays in our house and every Friday, uh, well, not every, but most Fridays I take Harper and she hits a Frappuccino and we pay for the car behind us. And a lot of people, when they find out I do that have started buying frappuccinos on Fridays. Like they, not necessarily a frappuccino, but they just pay for the person behind them wherever they've gone for coffee that day. And, you know, it's just like, it's so, it's so lovely. And so people, you know, you're, you feel lonely. Just like, I promise you, you are not alone. Somebody is journeying with you Mm -hmm. um, and, and thinking of you and loving you. And, like, if you don't have that, just find me because I will mm-hmm. think of you and love you and pray for yeah. you and journey with you in whatever capacity mm-hmm. you need to be journeyed with. Like, it's, yeah, yeah. I just don't um, want people to feel alone. Nope. Yeah. Nope. Same. And I think that's why we share our stories. Absolutely. Right? Hey, look, there's somebody else. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I don't know if you've read the book um, Between Two Kingdoms by Seleka Jawad. No. Do I need you can to borrow it? mine. Okay, right I will. <laughs> so when she was in her early 20s, she was diagnosed with uh, a type of, I think, leukemia or a type of cancer that only had like a 30% chance of survival. Okay. And she was sick for a very, very long time. Mm-hmm. And then she got better. Yeah. And the book is about re-entering the sort of kingdom of the well Yeah. when you have been sick for so long and the challenges of that. Mm-hmm. And you'll love it. And it's an amazing book. Um, and many of the things she wrote in it really resonated with me. And I wanted to, to read one, one line from it. Um, she wrote, After you've had the ceiling cave in on you, whether through illness or some other catastrophe, you don't assume structural stability. You must learn to live on the fault lines. Mm-hmm. What have you learned about living on the fault lines? Yeah. I think like, again, there's like this, for me, this like obligatory expression of gratitude. Like, yeah, yeah, that I still am on, I'm still here. Mm-hmm. I'm still doing, people are still honoring Evelyn and building a legacy for her alongside us and, and stuff. And like, yeah, like, I mean, that's so good because there's certainly moments where I feel like I'm falling into mm-hmm. the fault line, yeah. but there's always somebody who's like, just wait, I got you. Mm-hmm. And like jumps over the edge and pulls me out. I don't think anybody is void of fault lines in their life. Like no. everybody has been through something that oh, is yeah, hard. Yeah. And I always say like, your heart is relative to your experience. Mm-hmm. And so what you think is the hardest thing you're ever going to go through is the hardest thing you're ever going to go through. And it makes it relevant to my level of heart because you don't know worse than that hard. Yeah. And so that's where like, again, that idea of like just respecting people in their journey and, and being willing to walk alongside them, however mm-hmm. they are, because like their experience is relative to what they know. Mm-hmm. And so everybody has a fault line, mm-hmm. whether that be that like their marriage is struggling or infertility 
or maybe their heart is that like they're struggling to find their place in high school. Maybe your heart is that you lost your child or your spouse is sick or, or your heart is that like you're, you're a marginalized person and and you don't feel seen or valued or respected. It's all hard. And Mm -hmm. those are fault lines. Those are fault lines for people that they're journeying. And, and yeah, like, I don't think anybody is void of a fault line. I really don't. Maybe like some fault lines are like, what's the big one in California? Yeah. Like my fault line is that San Andreas fault. Is that what it's called? Yeah. There's that's something like that. My fault line is like that big one. Mm -hmm. And maybe your fault line is just like a little crack. Mm -hmm. It's still fault line and it's still valid. Still feels scary and alone and lonely. Yeah. Yeah. It's still valid. Yeah. 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 I think that's, that's what we're doing here is trying to say, Hey, it's way, it's way better if we do this together. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That just like the beauty of resilience that comes out of community is so significant. I am very grateful Mm -hmm. for you and I'm very grateful to know Evelyn. I feel like I know her so well and I'm so grateful that you have given everybody the opportunity to know her Yeah, and thank you for sharing more about her today. She's amazing. Everybody deserves to know her. That's one thing I feel like the whole world deserves to know this like really awesome human. And so we're just going to keep talking about her and doing things that she loved. Yeah. Um, Evelyn loved community and she loved people, which is why we've chosen to continue doing for people in her legacy and her name um, because it's authentic and honoring to yeah. the heart of who she was. And so we're just going to keep doing this. Mm-hmm. We're just going to keep going and doing these things and just ensuring that like, We are honoring all the best pieces of her. September is Childhood Cancer Awareness Month, and I was shocked to learn that childhood cancers are typically the most underfunded types of cancer. Heather is right when she says our kids deserve better. If you were touched by Evelyn's story today, you can go to www.teamevelyn.ca or follow Heather on Instagram at happilyheath to find out how you can help. See the episode info for that link and Heather's Instagram. People die. That is the one thing we know with certainty about life, but the love we have for people no longer physically with us does not go away. Heather hasn't stopped being Evelyn's mom. She doesn't want Evelyn to fade from view or memory, and so she keeps talking about Evelyn's life. She keeps doing things in her name. She keeps parenting Evelyn in this new way. It's of course not the way she pictured parenting Ev, but it's what she has now, and she continues to do her best with it. How can you help? Don't look away from these stories. They are important, and the people going through these worst nightmare losses need to be seen held and loved. To the Roy family, we will keep walking beside you in your grief. Thanks, as always, for listening. The past is now.